0: Welcome back to our study of eschatology. This is eschatology session number 10, and we are coming back now to the doctrine of the millennium. We had skipped over this during our study. The doctrine of the millennium um, occurs, uh, at least chronologically, depending on your view, uh, in between the return of Christ and the final judgment, if you hold a premillennial view. Um, but if you hold a different view, it's going to occur in a different place, and, and that brings me really to the reason why I saved the millennium until now, and that is most of the things that we have talked about in our study of the doctrine of eschatology have been things that most, if not all, Christians agree on, but the millennium is an area where there is quite a bit of disagreement, and so I've saved it till the end and what we're going to do is today look at the key passage for the millennium which is in revelation chapter 20 and talk about that just briefly and then i want to introduce you to the three major views of the millennium and then we will come back in another session or two or three and talk about um each of those views and the arguments for them and against them. It may even take four sessions. But anyway, we'll come back to that, uh, to the details later, but today I just want to introduce you to the key passage in Revelation 20 and talk about uh, how we respond to a doctrine like this where there's so much disagreement and uh, again, introduce you to the major views on this passage and on this doctrine from scripture. So let's look together at Revelation chapter 20. This is the key passage verses one to six when it comes to the millennium. In fact, this is the only passage where the millennium is explicitly mentioned. Now there may be other passages that you can argue refer to the millennium, but this is the only place in the Bible where we are specifically told about a 1,000-year period, and that's where the name millennium comes from, right? We're talking about a 1,000-year period, and here's what the Apostle John says in Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Blessed and blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So again, that passage, those six verses, are the hinge on which all of the major views of the millennium uh, turn. right? This is the key text. And let me just point out a few things that are uh, clear in this passage, although what we make of them, how we interpret them and understand them may not be as clear. Number one, this passage teaches that Satan is bound for a thousand years. That's in verse 2. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The second thing is, during that thousand years, Satan is not able to deceive the nations. Verse 3, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. The third thing is, at the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released. The end of verse 3 says, after that, he must be released for a little while. Number four is that some came to life and reigned with Christ for that thousand years. So, during that thousand years, Satan is bound, but also during that thousand years, some have come to life and are reigning with Christ. Um... So verse four, uh, toward the, it's a long verse, but at the very end of the verse, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then finally, number five, the rest came to life after the thousand years. Right? Verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, what is that thousand year Period. And how do we explain these things that Revelation 20 happens? Well, again, there are three major views of how to explain what's going on in Revelation 20 and to relate Revelation 20 to the rest of Scripture. One of those views is what is called premillennialism. And the prefix pre there is emphasizing that Jesus will come back before. Before the millennium. The return of Christ will be pre millennial. It will be before the thousand year reign of Christ. Now, within premillennialism, there are, are two different views there's uh, historic premillennialism and there's dispensational premillennialism. We don't need to get into that today, but just so you know, there are a couple of major views inside of that view, but premillennialism. Is the first view and arguably the most popular view. The second view is what is called post-millennialism. The post prefix there emphasizes that in this view, Christ will return after the millennium, after the thousand years uh, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. And in this view, the millennium. Is a golden age of Christianity where virtually all the world will be Christianized and then Jesus will come back. So that's very different than the premillennial view, where um, usually as often associated with that view is the idea that things are going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. And then uh, Jesus will uh, reign on the earth for a thousand years. So premillennial. Jesus comes back before the millennium. Post-millennial, Jesus comes back after the millennium. And then the third view is what's called amillennialism. Now amillennialism would technically mean that there's no millennium. The prefix ah negates uh, the word. Amillennial then would mean that there is no millennium. But amillennialism does not actually believe that there's no millennium. All millennialism believes that the millennium is taking place right now, that the millennium is a spiritual or heavenly reality that is going on uh, even now and will continue to go on until the return of Christ. So the in the millennial view, the millennium is an indefinite period of time. A thousand years is is in that sense a uh, a symbolic number or or sort of metaphorical number. It's not a literal one thousand years exactly. You mark it on your calendar. It's a it stands for a long period of time. And by the way, a lot of numbers in Revelation are symbolic. Doesn't mean they're meaningless, but they are symbolic. Um, symbolic of a long period of time and uh that thousand years stands for uh the time between the first and second comings of christ so uh the millennium is what is going on uh right now All right, so those are the three views now what do we do with the fact that there are three major views uh about this passage how do we Think about that, how do we relate to people who hold different views uh, on this passage than we do, or what if you don't have a view, right? Um, How do we think about that? Well, uh, something I have found really, really helpful, not only for thinking about this doctrine, but for thinking about other doctrines as well, is what uh, Al Mohler calls theological triage. And he, he's not the only one who's talked about this, but he's the one that I uh, learned it from first, and uh, his thoughts on this have been extremely helpful to me. Triage, of course, is something we usually associate with doctors in emergency situations where people are evaluated and sorted uh, according to the extremity of their need and who needs to be treated first and things like that. Theological triage is a way of distinguishing the importance of different doctrines. Not all doctrines in the Bible are equally important. All doctrines in the Bible are important, but not all doctrines are equally important important. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That teaching about the death and resurrection of Christ, which happened in accord with the scripture, that is for Paul and should be for us of first importance. It is not of equal importance for example with uh paul's teaching about speaking in tongues that's just not the same level of importance it's still important but it's not the same level of importance so when we talk about theological triage we got three levels the first we call first order doctrines these are doctrines that you must believe in order to be considered a Christian. These are the essential doctrines of the Christian faith that all Christians at all times, uh, more or less, affirm and agree uh, upon regardless of denomination, regardless of, you know, a host of different uh, opinions and differences about other things. So first order doctrines would be things like the doctrine of the Trinity, Right, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, uh, that Jesus is God. The doctrine of salvation by grace through faith apart from works. These are essential doctrines that all Christians agree upon. If you don't believe in the Trinity, or you deny the deity of Christ, or you believe in salvation by works, you are outside of the Christian faith right not just outside of a particular denomination like baptist or presbyterian or methodist or whatever you are outside of the christian faith second order doctrines are doctrines that christians can disagree on but churches tend and churches and or denominations tend to agree upon so The two easiest examples in this category would be the doctrine of baptism and the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So if you believe in infant baptism instead of believer's baptism, that does not automatically make you not a Christian. But it does automatically make you not a Baptist or if you uh, believe in believer's baptism and not in infant baptism, that does not automatically make you not a Christian, but it does automatically make you not an Anglican, not a Presbyterian, not a Methodist, not a Roman Catholic. So not all Christians agree on baptism, and there there are Presbyterians and Methodists and so on who believe the same gospel As Baptists do, and non-denominational churches who baptize believers, they agree on the gospel, but they disagree on the practice of baptism. Who should be baptized and how? Uh, So that's a second-order doctrine. It's important for the health of a particular church or of a denomination, for everybody in that church or in that denomination to agree upon that if we disagreed inside of the same church about how we should practice baptism that would become a contentious issue probably every time it was time for somebody to be baptized every time a child was born into the church are we going to baptize this child or not or every time somebody made a profession of faith and wanted to join the church you know should they have been baptized early you know it's it's going to be a contentious issue Uh, similarly with the lord's supper there are different um, understandings of what is going on in the Lord's Supper. Is it uh, only symbolic? Or is there some sense in which the, the uh, Christ is, is uh, present in the elements? Or do the, the elements of, of um, bread and fruit of the vine, do they actually become the body and blood of Christ? These are disagreements inside of the Christian faith and probably your church our church will have um more or less one specific view that we all agree on um we might disagree with other christians but that doesn't make them not christians or make us non-christians right so that's the second level second order doctrines third order doctrines are doctrines that not only Um, can Christians disagree on, but even Christians inside the same church and same denomination can disagree on, and it doesn't or ought not to affect their fellowship. And in this category, we put things like your belief about the millennium or your belief about um, the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. It's okay to have an opinion. It's good to study those passages of Scripture, those doctrines, and to try to come to a a sound biblical conclusion. It's not okay to break fellowship with people who disagree with your interpretation of those doctrines or those passages. So people who are premillennial, postmillennial, millennial ought to all be able not only to get along and affirm each other as Christians, but also ought to be able to get along inside the same church. I um, remember one pastor uh, saying one time, he said, if you are a pastor and you have led your church to adopt a particular view of the millennium that you require for church membership, you are wrongly dividing the body of Christ and are in sin. I think that's correct. Uh, And that may be a controversial opinion for some. But I think you are unnecessarily and wrongly dividing the body of Christ if you require people to hold a particular view of the millennium in order to be a member of a particular church. This is something we ought to be able to disagree upon and still love each other and still fellowship with one another and still affirm that we believe the whole Bible and we take the whole Bible seriously because here, here's the thing I always wanna point out when I talk about the millennium, and hopefully I'll be able to show this to you as we study uh, each view in a little bit more detail. And that is that when you look at people from church history and from the present who have held these different views or currently hold these different views, you will find no matter what view you're talking about and no matter what view you hold, There is somebody smarter and godlier than you and smarter and godlier than me that holds a different view than you do. It holds a different view than I do. There are godly, humble, wise people who hold different views on this issue than you and I may hold. And it's important for us to acknowledge that and recognize that and not treat the millennium as something that every smart or thoughtful Bible-believing Christian ought to hold the exact same view on. It just doesn't work that way on this view. So as we talk about these different views, as we talk about premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism, we will talk about um, pros and cons for each view. Uh, And I will probably tell you which one I lean toward the most, But I'll go ahead and say up front, I'm not 100% convinced about any of these views. I see problems with all of them. I see weaknesses with all of them. With all of them, there are things I can't explain. But there is one in particular that I think um, matches more of the biblical evidence, uh, answers more biblical questions than the rest. Um, But I'm sympathetic in some ways toward all three of them. So... um, I'm looking forward to digging into the details of these with you in the weeks ahead, but uh, in the meantime, remember this is a doctrine we hold with humility. This is not a doctrine worth dividing over. This is a third order doctrine in which there's going to be disagreement in which you might even change your mind uh, over the, the course of your growth as a Christian. Uh, hopefully you won't ever change your mind about the doctrine of the Trinity or the deity of Christ or salvation by grace through faith, but this is a doctrine where you might even experience some change in your own thinking as you study the Bible. So we're going to look at these together. Uh, I'm looking forward to digging into Revelation 20 a little bit deeper with you, as well as some other parts of the Bible to help us understand this important passage. And in the meantime, uh, God bless and come Lord Jesus.